Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. Great episode today. We have Arthur of Zeal, which is a new radio frequency technology designed to reduce yeast and mold and pesticides in recently cultivated cannabis. It comes from the food safety world and now is being applied to this new, much bigger industry. It's fascinating stuff. Arthur comes from Wall Street as well as has a big pharma background and now has entered the cannabis industry. It's a fascinating discussion. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick second to talk about a new business that producer Eric and I have just launched. It's called Balanced Advisor. And what we've learned over the last three years from interviewing founders over and over again, almost 100 episodes now, is that there's just never enough hours in the day. Well, that's where Balanced Advisor comes in. Balancedadvisor.com. We've set up a few different packages of things that we do really well that maybe some founders don't do as well. Uh, so if you need help with taxes or capital preparation, performas, uh, deck, storytelling, video content creation, we're here to help. If you have a startup and you want to sleep again, you want your life back, you need some help. Let us know. Balancedadvisor.com. Well, Arthur, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to what will be uh, surely a very interesting conversation. Uh, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here investing in cannabis. Totally. Um, let's get you started on an easy one. Uh, what is Zeal? Zeal is a company that specializes in the treatment of microbials to kill pathogens. And Zeal is the German word for target. It's a catchy way for saying we target microbials. And we do that in both foodstuffs, such as almonds and nuts, and now in cannabis. Fascinating. I like the name, too. I like when names make sense. Um, okay, dig in a little bit there. Uh, let's start with cannabis. This show's mostly about cannabis. Do we have How much of a problem do we have with pesticides and these things that your product removes? We work with large cultivators, processors, and we see customers, our customers, investing a lot of money in their cannabis grow environments. They spend money on lights, on soils, greenhouses, very intensive capital outlay. They don't realize when they create a perfect environment for growing cannabis, they're also creating a perfect environment for growing mold. Mm. And mold is on us, it's on our hands as we speak, it's on our body, and it is pervasive and it's everywhere. It's not to mean that all, all mold is bad. Of course, we've made penicillin for mold. But mold is a prevalent problem for cannabis, and we're going to talk a bit more about the impact of mold. But it is there, and there's a reason why regulatory bodies in all the countries that have a cannabis presence require testing for mold. Yeah, I think I've read statistics in California that upwards of 80% of cannabis on the market has some pesticides or mold or, or bacteria. Have you seen those numbers? I mean, how, how accurate are those numbers? Brandon, it is, it is really a wide uh, disparity in numbers. First of all, pesticides is a, is a whole other world into itself, and we do not uh, remediate cannabis when it's been uh, exposed to pesticides. The authorities look at pesticides once once it's been, the box has been checked, there's no way to remediate it and you have to destroy your product. 
in most cases. Uh, it. When it comes to uh, on the mold incidents, that's really a function of what is your growing environment. We work with outdoor farms, we work with greenhouses, and we work with very indoor, very controlled indoor environments as well. Got it. Um, but which of those do you think fits best, or, or kind of give me the profile of, sure. the, of the cultivator that fits best? Sure. The <laughs> mold, like real estate, it's local. So for a customer in the high desert in Pueblo, Colorado, their microbial uh, environment would be very different than a grower uh, in Mendocino, mm-hmm. or for that matter, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, mm-hmm. or Ontario, uh, Canada. And probably an outdoor grow environment, not probably, most assuredly an outdoor grow environment is going to have the most exposure and the highest incidence of mold because it's outdoors. Uh, it's subject to the prevailing winds. If there's a farmer tilling next door mm. or or another activity going on, that those air, that air is going to carry mold with it. So that'll be the highest exposure. It can range anywhere between 20% to 70% uh, mold levels. And I want to be careful here, mold levels that will cause that product to not pass regulatory compliance testing in the microbial area. 70% you said. 70% up to 70%. Up to 70%. That's right. astounding number though. I, I mean, it is. I, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, grow, outdoor growing environment is, is a great environment. It's a low cost environment. It's why people choose to do it. Uh, obviously an indoor grow environment is extremely controlled. Uh, we've seen, growing environments indoors that approach pharmaceutical GMP manufacturing facilities. Uh, and there the instance could be as low as half a percent. Uh, but for our modeling, we speak to customers, you know, half a percent to 5% for a controlled environment level of failure that they should be thinking about five to 15% for an open greenhouse with passive airflow. And as I mentioned, 20 to 70% if you're an outdoor farm, depending mm-hmm. on, your environment got it okay so enter your technology uh how how is the, how is your solution work how uh, how does it fit in best sure we propose you know to our customers you're you're going to approach this in a number of ways first of all your license is your most valuable asset so you want to protect your license the last thing any cultivator wants is to go to all this effort this investment uh make these commitments to their investors only to have their product not pass compliance testing, the microbial component. Mm-hmm. So that's a big loss if it does. Now, if that product were to be put on the shelf and there were to be an inspection, uh, that cultivator could be in jeopardy, certainly fined. And so you're protecting the license first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And there's a safety reason behind that because mold can cause you know, serious health effects. The second uh, thing we promote to our customers is, hey, you know, think of this as insurance policy. You're going to do the best you can to remediate or to prevent mold right from the outset. And we certainly recommend doing everything you can up front to prevent a mold situation. But it's going to occur. We can talk a little about mold and how it travels in a moment. But, you know, be smart. 
there's a reason why the food industry in almond industry, for instance, has a kill step, even though they grow it, they grow it organically, they must have a kill step before it can reach the consumer. Same thing with the milk we drink. Uh, it must be remediated, you know, as a preventative measure. And describe so, that, the, the kill step a little bit. What does that mean? Yeah. It gets a bit science wonky here, but we have uh, log reduction. So log four is the reduction of the uh, mold. And that's to one part of 10,000 colony forming units per gram. That's the metric. A log five reduction for milk, for instance, is a 100,000 colony forming units per gram. Uh, you know, much more instance. So it's, we the, can achieve, it's the safety threshold there. Though. It's the safety yeah. threshold, yeah. correct. Got it. And the third value proposition we, we promote to our customers, it depends on their environment. If you're in, the, in uh, the United States, you know, you have sort of a, well, I don't need to do anything. I will just send my product to my extraction facility where a high temperature in making oils, for instance, or a wax will kill the mold. And it certainly will. Uh, that's great if you have an extraction facility in-house. But if you don't, you know, and you have to sell your product, you're going to be selling at a discount. So I'll take the a financial example in Colorado. A wholesale price is $1,000 a pound. That's for flour. Mm -hmm. And if that flour fails microbial testing, you'll either have to extract, extract it in-house or send it to an extractor who will buy it. And so it becomes commoditized. You have to discount it. And that price is, let's say for argument's sake, it's $500 a pound. Mm -hmm. So you're giving up $500 a pound. And if you are a 20,000 pound of flour a year and you have 10% mold, mold uh, failure, or excuse me, 10% failure due to mold, that's going to be 2,000 pounds, $500. That's a million dollars of opportunity cost of lost revenue. Mm -hmm. So our machine is not cheap. It is a quarter million dollars, but you can see in that example, it pays for itself multiple times over in the first year. And then if, if you're, you're Canada, a particularly large cultivator, or if I guess you're a large a, cultivator yeah. and you have a high incidence. Yeah. So I, I use those numbers. But, you know, if we go up to Canada where the prevailing remediation technology is gamma radiation, that uh, is equivalent of $40 treatment per kilogram. Mm -hmm. And our treatment is less than $1 a kilogram. Got it. So for, as we know, our Canadian cousins up north are very large producers. They've really got to jump on the states here. 1,000 kilograms a day at just 0.5%, less than 1% failure rate, switching from gamma, which is a radiating technology, or, or ionizing, mm -hmm. to a organic, non-ionizing product, which our Apex radio frequency equipment is, that will save that large producer $9 million a year. And that money goes right to the bottom line. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's quite significant. Um, take us through how the technology works uh, more specifically. Radio frequency has been in commercial use for more than 50 years. For the first 40 of those 50, it was used principally to dry textiles. Uh, it is a heat process. And we're going to get to the implications of heat on cannabis in a moment. The About 10 years ago, our company commercialized IP that was out done in UC Davis for the pasteurization of nuts, i.e. almonds. 
there was a salmonella outbreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, salmonella is a microbial, just like E. coli and just like mold. And by the way, all three are in the microbial testing regime uh, for most states and countries. And we successfully deployed this technology in high volume output in nut processing lines in Australia, uh, California, where we're the largest organic producer, grower of organic almonds in the world. Uh, and we've also deployed it in Chile and Central America for chia seeds, again, mm. pasteurizing it. But so that's the core technology. And about three years ago, we were approached by a large farm in Colorado that was faced with the very same challenge. We're not going to pass this new testing of 10,000 colony forming units. In fact, we're going to fail terribly unless we do something. So they approached Zeal and said, you guys have a success in targeting microbials. Can you leverage this technology into the cannabis industry? And we thought about it. We said, well, there's no reason why not. Let's try. So with that came a collaborative relationship with the largest outdoor cannabis farm in the United States, Bosuenos Farms Mm -hmm. in Pueblo, Colorado. And we took our very large, robust commercial machinery, processing 2,500 pounds an hour on a conveyor belt. And we made a, a mini-me, a batch process that will process 20 pounds in about 10 minutes. Hmm. Of course, we have the opportunity to scale up and change the technology as the cannabis industry grows and, and do a conveyor belt system. And the industry up in Canada is just about getting to that point. But that's, that is the genesis of the radio frequency from textiles to food products and now for cannabis. Absolutely fascinating. And I, I sort of love that development and pivot into the cannabis industry. How much uh, of the business is now focused on cannabis? We are focusing all of our marketing and our expansion into the cannabis market. We've, we've, we have a healthy business in the food industry. Uh, we have certainly more room to grow, but the growth is certainly in cannabis. And we were, we were thinking uh, last year, okay, uh, which market should we be in? Should we continue in the food or, or start this cannabis? And I quickly did the math. And if you look at Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, and Canada, just those markets, Western United States and, and Canada alone, we said in three years, that's going to be a $50 billion market, uh, potentially $20 billion, mm-hmm. $50 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took the almond business 50 years to get to $2 billion. Mm. Hmm. Mm. Uh, decision was made right then. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I do love almonds, uh, yeah, that's not quite enough. Um, fascinating. So tell me a little bit about sort of how it's been received otherwise. Um, you talked about Los Sueños. Where else are you guys deployed now? We we launched in Colorado. Uh, Los Buenos is an outdoor farm. They also have four greenhouses. So we, we have two to three environments. And then we, we work, started working with the Green Solution in Denver, which is a vertically integrated uh, cannabis company operating in a controlled indoor environment in a warehouse. So we wanted to see how we did in each of those three environments where the value proposition was. So two and a half years later, you know, 100,000 pounds of cannabis processed, we have uh, the numbers to support the claims that we make. 
we come from the food science background, so we're very evidence-based. So we needed the data. My own personal background is in big pharma. I was country manager of AstraZeneca, and mm. so underwent clinical trials. I know the value of data and, and support of data to make your claims. And so with that success record, okay, we now have the data, we can make claims. Let's then extend this uh, and do a market rollout. So we are focused on Canada, uh, Arizona, of course, Colorado still, New Mexico, and yes, California, huge market. Uh, but as we all know, those operating in California, it's under emergency regs right now. It's messy. And, it's messy. And <laughs> the dust is not settled. Yeah. So we have a foothold. We don't have any installations in California, but we know what we can do. But any any large customer who is looking at, okay, what do I have to do to protect my business? They can't make a decision until the rules are clear. And that is clear. They just can't afford to make the investment yet? Is that is that the idea? They have the financial uh, uh, means to make the investment. However, the rules could change. So right now in Colorado, Canada, Europe, it's 10,000 colony forming units per gram of yeast and mold. Uh, California has taken a different track in its emergency rigs uh, for strain specific, the aspergillus strain, completely, uh, you know, not addressing the yeast and mold. Aspergillus is a, is a much narrower strain of mold, but by no means it's focusing on that one strain, in our view, makes the uh, product safe. And uh, so the California Cannabis Industry Association Quality Control Committee is now taking this up with the Bureau of Cannabis Control. Um, there's a unanimous decision by the board that, hey, this does not appropriately address the microbial risk in cannabis for right. consumers in California. Got it. And so they're taking that under advisement. So we'll see what comes. But if you're Got a producer it. and you want to make a business decision, you want to know what you need to, uh, you know, what regulations you need to meet and they're just not clear yet sure oh that that makes a lot of sense uh, do you feel that that's sort of delaying your traction and growth or is there a world big enough outside california that it just it'll come when it comes uh i agree with you brandon but with the latter i think it's going to be a tremendous market it's going to be huge and we have uh very ambitious plans for california we're we have negotiations and discussions with the largest growers and uh they're ready to go as soon as uh the final regs are clear Got in the it. meantime uh again our our neighbors up in canada are racing ahead mm -hmm. as you know with their upcoming recreational market yes but they're also building tremendous capacity to export uh so they are uh, by orders of magnitude much larger uh, and they've got everything. They've got the wind at their back. They've got a federal legal oversight, uh, very clear rules. They have capital markets. Um, they're flush with cash. And, and very, very large valuations. They are uh, <laughs> very large. For those old enough uh, who remember .com or yours truly who remembers the stock market crash of 1987, you know, no tree grows to the sky. So 
while the valuations are high, we believe that the market will will continue, and and it's here to stay. Uh, it's certainly here to stay. Uh, it's just as if you put your investor hat on, uh, it is a little crazy. It's yes. getting uh, a little outrageous, and I think there are some that are starting to be uh, sort of wary of of that. Uh, but the truth is that the U.S. has left a, a tremendous vacancy and really just let let uh, Canada have it. <laughs> and that's kind of crazy and, and un-American in a lot of ways, but good for them, uh, good for Canada. And, and I certainly have made a lot of close Canadian friends uh, through this process. Um, how have you funded sort of this new arm, uh, this new growth into cannabis? We, we, were, we were lucky in that we had an ongoing entity in the, in the food business, and uh, we had the internal resources to, you know, to, to grow. So just and, existing revenues, just existing revenues. Yes. That's yes. awesome. That's really cool. Um, and any plans? Are you going to need to raise any money to do this? We were asked, we've been asked this several times uh, by people, and, and the ancillary cannabis business, businesses are uh, now, now surging. Maybe because the valuations of the uh, cultivators is is high, as you just pointed out, and mm-hmm. people are looking for the the secondary businesses that quote don't touch the plant, yep. and it's a much greater pool of money that is allowed to invest in that than you know as you know institutional money uh, cannot invest in U.S. institutional money cannot invest in U.S. Uh, cannabis. Yep. All uh, kinds companies. of vice clauses and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. But uh, the secondary businesses, you know, such as, you know, people who sell lights, you've seen various roll-ups, financial roll-ups. Uh, like, I think it was Scott's that uh, purchased, uh, you know, a lighting business. Uh, yep. Excuse me if uh, I've got that sideways. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of growth in that. So I call it the Levi Strauss model. We're not going to mine for the gold. We're just selling the pickaxes to the miners. Totally, and, yeah. And so that's also become very attractive for investors that want to play uh, in the cannabis business. Yeah, I actually um, happen to find that side of the business the most fascinating. I think cannabis uh, touching the planet is largely a commodity and a race to the bottom. And it's hard for me to see how uh, markets along the equator don't eventually win. Um, but if you're talking about softwares or technologies like yours, well, that's a whole different game. You, you know, it's not just about who can make the most, right? Um, that's exciting. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, those along the equator, you know, even the, uh, the, the companies up in Canada, you know, they're, they're greenhouse operators. Uh, they have a lot of experience in greenhouses growing vegetables. Uh, and... Some are making great inroads, but they are looking over their shoulder and saying, you know, how are we going to compete with extremely low cost providers, uh, say Columbia, uh, where a lot of investments taking place, uh, it, you know, outdoor grows, but then, you know, they've got the very cheap labor. So yep. they are going to be a competitive threat to, uh, to greenhouse operators. Particularly uh, when you add the, uh, sort of growth of non-smokables and vape pens, which rely on the uh, lower quality uh, type of weed, right? Just to, it doesn't require the same sort of bud appeal or bag appeal. You don't have to have as good a quality to sell it in a product that sort of masks it a little bit. And that's where I think the future is going to 
going to change a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm always going to want high quality flowers, but I think I'm, I'm more and more in the minority. Well, we were speaking a little bit about the outdoor grow environments, you know, 20 to 70% incidence of mold. Mm-hmm. But if they send all that product to extraction and they just, they're doing a volume, that's an interesting play that some U.S. wholesalers are now doing. They're not trying to make the best flour. They're making, you know, what have the lowest cost of product. Again, they don't have to worry about the mold if they plan on selling all of it to an extractor. Yep. So if you're a low-cost envir- uh, low grow environment, maybe that makes more sense to just focus on that because the, the, the quality of flour is, you know, is going to be grown greenhouse or indoors, and it's going to command a higher price point to afford that uh, infrastructure. Yep, well said. Um, you mentioned that you came from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I'm fascinated sort of by that comparison and where you think that winds up. Are there going to be uh, – where, where does that head? What, what's the role of big pharma in cannabis going forward? <laughs> uh, I, I also have a previous chapter working in Wall Street for 10 years. That's why I referenced the uh, 87 crash. Yep. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I've worked in Wall Street. I worked in big pharma. I worked in commercial solar, selling to large strategic accounts such as uh, Walmart, Home Depot. Cool. And then I became involved in this this food business. And it's an interesting marriage between the investment, the pharma, and the food as I see things evolving. So my pharma hat says I get, I get the high-quality GMP manufacturing. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not in absence of that protective step that I referenced in, in milk or in almonds. Uh, the kill and step. The food, right, the kill step. And in, in the food industry, you know, they're dealing with plants, a lot of variabilities, so they build in a kill step. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I, I see this, the cannabis as a convergence of both the pharma, best practices in manufacturing, and the kill step that's in the food industry. Because after all, it's a plant, there's a lot of variability uh, in the plants, and things can... You know, it's a living entity, and it's going to pick up all sorts of uh, potential diseases along the way. So having that kill step is is important. And in terms of my investment hat, you know, I see I see this as a tremendous opportunity, and uh, it's a very exciting time and place to be in the cannabis business. Absolutely fascinating, and your perspective and that that background makes it all the more interesting. Um, switch gears a little bit here. You're you're relatively new to the cannabis industry. Uh, what part of uh, does cannabis play in your life personally? I was not a cannabis smoker since uh, my teens, and I found smoking uh, a flower uh, to be very harsh. And I'm not a I'm not a cigarette smoker. Never have been. So yep. smoking has never been in my orbit. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, I was a little bit reticent of probably like many people of the impact of cannabis and what could it do. And I I'm not a frequent uh, vapor, but I find the vaping to be incredibly gentle mm-hmm. uh, without the harmful or without the effects that I don't like about smoking cannabis, mm-hmm. but with the benefits. And I like that uh, I know exactly what I'm getting in terms of THC or cannabinoid profile and versus the flower. Yes, you, you, get it, you can 
it's just not as dialed in as as the as the oils and the extracts are. So I I have uh, warmed to vaping, uh, and I use it for uh, you know a sleep aid sometimes, or sometimes uh, you know to reduce stress. Uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, um, I think that's how a lot of people view it. And I think that's probably the healthiest way to view it, um, is it's good for certain moments and, and for certain ailments or, or relaxing when you need to relax. Um, sounds like you have a pretty healthy, uh, relationship with it. Um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, first time founders, as well as kind of entrepreneurs or, or people that are looking to get into the industry. Um, you have had a number of businesses and a pretty sophisticated take on the cannabis industry. Any advice for somebody that's getting in or, um, you know, thinking about getting in? Uh, I learned a very hard lesson, uh, when living overseas, uh, I lived in Russia for 10 years in their nineties and you came over there to start one business and you saw, well, wait a minute, there are no Xerox machines. I'll start a, a copy center. Well, wait a minute. There's no paper. I'll start a paper business. And so the opportunities are, are wide and amazing. So the takeaway is focus, 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 uh, be focused on doing one thing and do it well. I think that's awesome advice and a good place to wrap up. Um, how can the audience help you, Arthur? Are you hiring for anything? What are you looking for? How, how can we help you? I would, uh, you know, help us uh, spread the word that there are a lot of other alternatives to remediate your, your cannabis to meet compliance. Uh, radio frequency, uh, our technology and our Apex machine is benign, organic. We didn't cover what radio frequency actually does, but it's an electromagnetic process that that uh, oscillates the water molecule in the flower 27 million times a second, and we elevate it to a certain temperature just enough to kill the mold and meet compliance, but without uh, damaging the sensory properties of the cannabis. So your no decarboxylation, retains 99% potency, terpene retention. So that's why... Uh, up in Canada, they're moving from gamma to radio frequency, and why the largest uh, cannabis farm in the United States has four of our units and processes 100% of our of their product with our technology. So, I think just uh, all of us are learning as we go, and to there are going to be a lot of technologies brought from other industries into cannabis, and look for those companies that bring our technologies that have a success record demonstrated in other industries and uh, incorporate them into the cannabis industry. It's an exciting time. Very exciting. I agree. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you. Thanks, Brandon. Yep. See ya. Thanks for listening, guys.